doing today a one session summary of Griset on contraception, which is a pretty uh, bold thing to, to try and attempt to do. So just so we're, I'm clear, you all post-date Griset being taught in this seminary, yeah? So none of you actually went through Griset in your course. We talked about it briefly, but... But not in any systematic way. Um, and I similarly am to um, Dr. Murphy, I'm not a disciple of Griset, therefore I'm not spending a lot of time on his thought. But there are significant numbers of people out there who are, therefore we do need to at least make this long a look at him. Um, also, <clears throat> as I noted in my notes that I hope you've read for today, um, historically he was an incredibly important figure in terms of defending the conclusion of the church's teaching that contraception is immoral, uh, that contraception is intrinsically evil, even though his argument for it is actually very particular and definitely not the traditional argument. Um, so we're going to start um, trying to map out his scheme. Um, a lot hinges on the notion of a good will. What does a good will move towards? Well, he has eight basic human goods, as he calls them. Is that eight? That's eight, I can count. Um, which between them, the will is aimed at integral human fulfillment. Yes, so how would Father McMahon say he was doing when you asked him, suppose that he would flourishing. say flourishing, uh, that this would be one of Griset's pivotal concepts, flourishing. So the will, um, and this is, you know, just very basically Thomistic as well, has an inbuilt movement. It's seeking fulfillment. It's seeking to be flourishing. You only are fulfilled. You only flourish by achieving, possessing basic human goods. Griset interprets... Um, St. Thomas's first precept of the natural law as pursue goods, which is a rephrasing of the first precept. Um, so as I noted in the notes I gave you, um, when Griset started his school, his first article articulating it all was a commentary on St. Thomas, claiming that what he is articulating is the authentic St. Thomas. Um, after, I don't know exactly how many years, uh, his school at some stage kind of gave up on saying that that is St. Thomas, 
said rather that it's a better system, um, though there are still a couple of his members of his school that do still argue that no, what they're saying is St. Thomas. So, I mean, I would say you don't have to be a Thomist to be a Catholic. Yeah, is that generous of me to say? Um, uh, so his, his school stands whether or not it's authentically St. Thomas. Um, some key principles in how you do that, um, that you may never act in opposition to a basic human good. So these eight basic human goods are not just random goods, like that cup of coffee you're drinking is a good, but it's not a basic human good. It's not a thing that so defines you as a human being that you may never act in opposition to it. You may never choose one good in opposition to another, which is kind of saying the same thing again, but a pivotal part of what his logic means. So I can't choose marriage in opposition to life. If we're thinking of kind of contraception, which is kind of how a certain type of progressive argument would go to defend the good of marriage, I will therefore oppose a new life coming into being because the good of our marriage requires it. And you've always got to keep things in balance. Um, proportionalism would have these things they'd call pre-moral goods and pre-moral evils, and that there are always lots of them out there where you want to maximize the pre-moral goods. So you're choosing one in opposition to another. Griset wants a system where you're never choosing against, so that these eight basic human goods that are so significant in terms of what a human is, you may never choose in a way that is in opposition to those. Linked with this, all eight goods are incommensurable. unmeasurable. That there is no hierarchy among them. And the eight goods are all self-evident. So linked with the notion that you never choose one in opposition to another, they're all in some sense equal. You can't compare them. You can't say this one is more important than this one. So marriage 
life, they're both basic human goods. It's not that one is more important than the other. They are, and I would imagine in this system, even the word equal just isn't relevant. They're incommensurable. You can't measure them. So you need to choose things in a way that you're never acting against any of them. Now, in that system, clearly what these eight things are is very important. Um, he says these eight things are self-evident. Um, so if we recall our natural law theory, the, the basic precepts, the first precepts of the natural law, St. Thomas says, are self-evident. They're written on the heart, they cannot be blotted out. There are other precepts that aren't self-evident, but they can be easily demonstrated, and then other precepts that are more complex to derive. But the foundation, there are some things that are self-evident, that can never be blotted out. So the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, um, cannot be blotted out. You can fail to live it, but it's just written into your human nature, you might not be able to articulate it, but once it is articulated to you, you couldn't conceivably deny it as a moral precept. So certain things that are self-evident. Um, the problem with Griset's school is when he first articulated it, there were seven basic human goods. So somehow, even to him, they weren't self-evident. So if, if your system hinges on it being self-evident, and even you, as you're making your list, don't figure out what those self-evident things are, that strikes me as deeply problematic. Uh, and the eighth one that got added later, as you'd have read, is marriage, which in his system, given his biggest kind of cause in life, was defending the truth against contraception, for marriage not to be realized, grasped as one of these basic human goods, self-evidently, I think weakens the credibility of the system. Okay, structurally, how does he build his approach? So first, you identify the source. Or rather, identify the choice. So for him, choices are hugely significant. So you're in some situation, what are you choosing? That's the first thing. Then he gives you eight modes of responsibility. Indicate which indicate choices incompatible with human fulfillment. So you first you. Think, what am I choosing? You identify 
precisely what is the choice. Then you have this tool that there are eight modes of responsibility, eight ways of choosing that indicate that some choices just aren't compatible with this integral human fulfillment. Then you'll remember from fundamental moral theology the, the whole thing about the object of the act. The object is then defined and it's defined with respect to the choice. So for him, these two things, object, choice, choice is very important in his whole way of perceiving things. And then norms, so he doesn't use the word rules or laws, he uses this phrase norms. Um, and he says these are defined with respect to the object of choice. And some norms are exceptionless. So in his system, not all norms are exceptionless, but some norms are exceptionless. So when Humana Vitae, not Humana Vitae, Veritatis Splendor came out and said there are these things intrinsically evil acts that intrinsically are always evil. This is what he's referring to. Norms, some things that have no exception. Is there ever a context when murder becomes permissible? No. Is there ever a choice when adultery becomes permissible? No. Um, whereas proportionalists like Janssen's um, has very complex arguments. So if you committed adultery in a chaste manner, yeah, so that the attitude imbuing the act was chaste, then the physical act of adultery or the material event that gets met with the attitude of chastity and if there is a proportionate reason then that becomes fine. That merely having described the act as adultery isn't enough in that system. Griset has a system where, in contrast, there are some acts that are, uh, some norms are exceptionless, always forbidding such choices. The choice to sleep with the wife of another man is always a choice that is, ex without exception, um, contrary to integral human fulfillment. That is an overview, matches what you read.
as much as you can understand it. So it is a very, um, what should we say, precise system. It's a system that has its own terminology, its own way of thinking. One of the more common critiques of it is that this just isn't how real people think. Real, real people don't go around thinking of the eight self-evident evident human goods and am I choosing for this one and against this one. Um, there's something about this that while it has a precision to it, kind of doesn't, to my way of thinking, feel human, feel real. Whereas a basic Aristotelian approach of, is this achieving its end, its goal, I think that just feels more natural. To define good in terms of whether it's achieving the end, that just, I feel I do that all the time. And when I read Aristotle describing that, it just seemed, ah yes, that's what I'm doing, rather than thinking, now I've got a whole new way of approaching reality here explained by Griset. So you remember when you did philosophy with Aristotle, when Aristotle has a question, he'll always ask, um, what do people say about such and such? He'll look at language, he'll look at common opinion, rather than kind of overlaying reality with some a priori structure seeking to draw out of human conversation and ways of speaking what is reality. Um, to my mind this feels like Immanuel Kant where you have a whole system that you kind of put on top of reality. Um, you know Kant would purify reasoning from experience, purify reasoning from the a posteriori, just start with a priori principles a good will, that's Kant's whole system in, in his ethics. Um, you kind of made a comment. Um, I wanted to ask about it, I guess. Or push back. Um, well, you just mentioned that this was, it seemed like maybe you said he came up with this as a way to uh, explain the church's teaching on contraception, is that right? Yes. So it, to me it seems, um, it seems, uh, I just have the question, why would you come up with a whole system of, of ethics to explain this one thing? I guess because at that moment in history, lots of people were realizing this one thing, contraception, a whole lot of other things depended on what the conclusion of that question was. So homosexuality, gay marriage, um, um, what it means to have a union in a way that is indissoluble and therefore divorce and remarriage. There's a whole lot of things that kind of flow out of that one question of contraception, as well as the fact that contraception was kind of a new question. 
So he started developing his system, I don't remember the exact date, but well before or significantly before Humana Vitae was published. It's not that it was published and he then came up with this. Um, so in the build-up to Humana Vitae, there were some people going around saying, um, you know, we can reinvent ethics, we can create whole new systems, um, and in those systems, um, contraception is sometimes wrong and sometimes right. So, you know, most, dare I say, more traditional progressives about that time would have seen contraception as having something problematic about it, having to use the language of of Janssen's some aspect of a pre-moral evil, but saying sometimes it's okay. Um, what do you mean when you say pre-moral evil or pre-moral evils? Yeah, I'm, it's, not, it's not part of uh, sound moral discourse. So I'm probably just confusing you by throwing that word in there. Th there are, so Veritatis Splendor uses this language, or rather rejects this language, um, but people who are saying that we can, we can kind of say there's a problem there and just call it pre-moral, but then say, but it's okay. Or, so the distinction sometimes made was, there's a difference between things being good and evil and things being right and wrong. Um, whereas Veritas, Veritatis Splendor rejects that distinction. Um, and so I would say what we mean by saying something is right or wrong is it's good or evil. Last bit of the structural analysis here before we start looking at examples. And what I was thinking is if we spend most of our time this morning just kind of working through some of his examples to see how this all plays out um, is the is ought thing. Um, so who can remind me what we said is ought was because you hadn't heard of this as a distinction before two weeks ago. Anyone able to reflect back to me what I was trying to articulate? And we can deduce the way it should act from looking at its nature. So from the is, we can deduce the ought. Now Griset is among the, well, David Hume, first of all, has this phrase, you can't get an ought from an is. Um, and since then, um, the first kind of, as far as I'm aware, the first Catholic to actually buy that conclusion is Griset. And he'll kind of start accepting that as a premise and say, well, let's figure out how we can derive a whole bunch of moral conclusions without looking at the nature of things, without looking at the is. So he says, well, we can start within reason, start with a priori principles, never look at the nature of things, the is, and just build more and more um, detailed parts of an argument staying within the a priori structure. 
as Immanuel Kant did, until we end up with, I mean, he doesn't say categorical imperatives the way Kant does, but in effect something similar. So do you remember Kant saying that we must purify reason of all experience? <laughs> Nobody? No. You've heard of Kant. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ethics. Modern, but kind of ran out of time at the end. It's like everything leads up to Kant, and now we have a week left. I don't know if we did him in ethics. That is fascinating. Okay. Because Kant and no, Mill. It's been a while. Okay, let's just say it's been a while. It's been a while. Um, okay, so Kant and John Stuart Mill. You, do you remember John Stuart Mill? Utilitarianism, consequentialism, everything's about the consequences. These are kind of the two systems in the modern world. Uh, and although they're wildly in opposition to each other, they're both secular, both in opposition to each other, but both kind of out there circulating. Um, so the Kantian has great belief and confidence in rules and norms, you know, a wonderful German. Um, whereas John Stuart Mill, wonderfully British, very practical, let's not have universal precepts, let's just, what works? Be practical, what gets the right result? The consequences. Um, which on another level feels very American, but also you do have within America lots of a kind of strongly German rule abiding. These things are not, they don't gel together, but they're both out there. Anyway, where are we going with this? Where am I trying to go? Uh, Kant, his whole notion of reasoning is we purify it of experience and only purify it of the a posteriori and only have the a priori, which is, in brief, what Griset is doing as well. And so why would Griset think that's an important thing to do? Some very influential philosophers before him had done something not quite the same, but similar. So he's trying to create he never says, I'm trying to be a Catholic Immanuel Kant. He definitely does not say that. But I think that's in effect what he's done. And on some levels, to be congratulated for having done that. Um, okay, he distinguishes practical reason and speculative reason. Two plus two makes four is a truth of speculative reason. It is not practical. It's not about doing stuff. There's some type of reasoning that is about the doing of things, practical reason. And this distinction would be in St. Thomas. Um, in terms of precepts, 
St. Thomas has the precept, good is to be done and pursued. That is a precept of practical reason. Whereas speculative reason might have um, a truth like the nature of sex is that speculative reason would know things in they are in themselves But in Griset's system, there is a hard epistemological line separating these. Uh, epistemology, you know, how we come to know things. So what Griset's system is saying is there isn't a connection between the truths of speculative reason and the truths of practical reason. And he and his school argue that point at some length. Um, the basic kind of traditional Thomist reply is a distinction is not the same as a separation. So to say that there are two fields of knowledge here doesn't mean there isn't a connection between the two. Um, and often in the study of things in theology, whether it's the Trinity or whatever you're looking at, there's a difference between a distinction and a separation. Um, three persons are distinct. In what sense are they separate? Well, no, they're one. Um, but that's his, yeah, his system. Certainly, listing them is not a significant part of his analysis. I just don't find him... Well, let's see. So any, of, any Catholic ethicist is going to say natural law can derive the Ten Commandments. That's one of the things, you know, there in the Catechism. How you get an argument to get to the Ten Commandments, different ethicists would kind of... I guess, different how they would construct such an argument. 
St. Thomas says the Ten Commandments are not self-evident. So, for example, theft, um, he says the ancient Germans didn't know that theft was wrong. Um, so they had to, it's possible for the Ten Commandments to be blotted out of the human heart. But they're in the category, the secondary precepts that are derived pretty easily. So to know to honor your father and mother, there are lots of people who don't know they should honor their father and mother. But it's pretty easy to figure it out, to, to grasp that. But it isn't self-evident. So large sections of his works, um, Griset will be saying, you know, this is a sin against the Sixth Commandment and whatever. Um, I don't recall where he would have got to the stage of saying, here in my reasoning, we therefore see the Sixth Commandment holds or whatever. Um, but I'm sure he does. Um, We okay to look at examples? Um, and obviously our main purpose in looking at examples is to see his examples on um, sexual morality. Uh, actually, let's just go through the pages for me to um, highlight a couple words for you to put a circle round, highlight, um, let's see, page one, the label naturalist and anti-naturalist, so halfway down the page. I know Anthony McCarthy uses this terminology. Just note that isn't a universal bit of terminology. So that's not Griset's term, anti-naturalist. It is one term, naturalist and anti-naturalist are terms used by some people. I think it's a very useful way of distinguishing but that's not Griset's term himself. Um, page two. So just have a glance at the nearly the top bullet points. Uh, the eight self-evident goods, I've listed all eight of them there. Any comments reading through them on them? What? Or could I rephrase it this way and say, is it not self-evident that harmony among whatever, because harmony is, harmony is always a good thing, is it not? Harmony as some of, as so constitutive that it is this thing a basic human good. That's the kind of point I don't think is self-evident. So that these just feel a little artificial to me. Um, what extent is that something that we have deduced 
So are these self-evident? Yeah. How does he decide what's self-evident without looking at reality? That would be my that would be my fundamental critique of Griset. Um, and so, in as much as I find Griset's system works, and as much as I find ah here he's made a really good argument, I think he then has actually gone from an is to an ought. He has actually looked at the nature of something and said something about its nature and made a conclusion. Which is the very thing he says he's not going to do. Um, and so part of the reason to look at his arguments is I think, in a sense, some of his arguments you can usefully use. Um, Okay, let's see. Um, page four, then. Let's start looking at examples. So the easiest example that I start with there is an intentional killing. So one of the eight basic human goods is life. Intentional killing is an anti-life choice, as he phrases it, to will death as an end or means, direct killing, clearly violates um, a basic human good, fails his whole structure. Do we all kind of see that as a structured argument in terms of where he's going? Similarly, abortion. So he describes this also as an anti-life choice. What are you choosing? What is the choice? It's against life. As they quote, in principle, the morality of killing the unborn is the same as that of killing people already born. I.e. the choice is death, which is contrary to the basic human good of life. Now, note the clarification abortion in the case of rape. So you note there, death isn't intended Death is simply a foreseen side effect of ending the woman's experience of rape. He says, but such a death violates the fifth mode of responsibility, namely fairness, and thus the act is wrong. Yeah, so these eight modes of responsibility become really important. They are, I think, the, the yeah, the last. And a more detailed listing of all the goods is on the second to last page. Um, so this, this mode of responsibility fairness is a very significant thing. Well, so, so, so he's arguing against abortion in the case of rape. 
Because he's saying it'd be unfair to the unborn child. Yeah, I think you are. I think that's a fair counterpoint. Um, another way of phrasing it could be there might be many other cases where in his system abortion would fail because of the fairness question rather than the anti-life question. So abortion, if you're in poverty, that your poverty means it's not that you're against life directly, but it still isn't fair to the unborn child to kill it, even though you're in poverty. So the fairness criteria. So it seems what I, maybe Christopher's question kind of gets to the heart of the, the anti-life choice is a basic human good choice, whereas fairness is a mode. And so then somehow you're you're needing to take both of those into consideration. Like the, the mode is the way to show that the choice is anti-life. And I think we would just say, well, it's clear that it's anti-life. Why is it why is it that it needs a mode to show that it's anti-life? Yeah. Or but another way of phrasing it, it just makes it too complicated. Yeah. Well, it also seems like if you're not allowed to choose against the good, then here he's saying you can choose against this good. Like, well, no, he's not saying abortion's okay, even in, in any of these cases. No, I know, but it, he's saying the death isn't intended, so it's not, he's saying somehow this isn't an anti-life choice when it seems pretty clearly to be an anti-life choice. So you're choosing against one of the goods. And it's not that it's, death is what is occurring, but it's that it's not fair. So it, it seems like you're choosing against one of the goods, and it's just the mode that, right? I think, and, and I'm, I'm not a disciple of his, yeah. but, so, but I think the mode indicates the type of choice, okay. and therefore would indicate that even though you don't, you're, you might be saying, I'm not intending death. Actually, it is an anti-life choice. And the mode of responsibility indicates that. So you're saying, I'm not against the life of this unborn child. I just don't want to be poor. Well, the mode of responsibility indicates that actually choosing abortion is an anti-life choice. So that you can't get to the final conclusion of knowing whether you're choosing against a basic human good without using these modes of responsibility to examine the act, the choice. Because if you could, if you could uh, clarify the choice before the modes of responsibility, you wouldn't need the modes of responsibility. Um, Okay, let's contrast that with the next example, fatally shooting a would-be rapist. So here the end is to avoid being raped. The means 
to prevent the would-be rapist from carrying out the behavior which would constitute rape. So preventing rape is how the choice is being described. So the death of the attacker is not chosen as means. The choice is not death. The choice is not anti-life. And pivotally, the eighth mode of responsibility, namely fairness, evaluates the bodily integrity of the, wo of the woman under threat and the life of the would-be rapist. So it's this mode of responsibility, fairness, that enables us to see what's going on in the rest of the analysis there and to see that it isn't, in this case, an anti-life choice, even though the means does result in the, the death of the assailant. So his conclusion here is just in keeping with any Catholic analysis, but his structure of the argument is very particular. Yes, you're all aware that the church values chastity, values bodily integrity, such that to defend yourself against rape, um, a use of violence that is of a proportion that will result in the death of the assailant is acceptable. So self-defense against the lethal threat and self-defense against a threat of rape are similarly seen by the, the church as um, situations that call for a use, if necessary, of lethal force. In Griset's terminology, the mode of fairness indicates that. So you might say, well, you don't know whether you're going to need lethal force because maybe he wants maybe there'd be some other way of preventing it. If you can prevent it without lethal force, if just calling for help will achieve that, then lethal force is not called for. Um, but the fairness question, someone who has threatened you in a certain way, they've lost um, what they've thrown into the fairness dynamic there, makes it appropriate for you to defend yourself in certain ways. Page five, let's move on to contraception or not. Um, so one of the points I want you to be able to take away from our running through this is he has two different arguments against contraception. One is contraception is anti-life. The other that he developed many years later is to say contraception is anti-marriage. So when he didn't have marriage as an, one of the eight basic human goods, he couldn't make that argument. Um, so I, my guess is that's part of why this argument came later. So when he's first drawing up his system, his argument against contraception is, is anti-life. So, page five, contraception is anti-choice. So he says it's an anti-life choice. Um, so structurally three points I, I indicate there. 
First, sexual intercourse is a generative and unitive kind of act. What is the kind of act? Generative and unitive. Contraceptive sexual intercourse chooses to exclude life. What's the choice? The choice is to exclude life. And that contracepted genital, a contracepted genital act is an anti-life kind of act. So we will use this terminology talking about the kind of act. As I note, this is defined in terms of intention. And I compare Immanuel Kant's morality, which is also in terms of intention and a goodwill. Um, Daniel, can you read that quote? So this is directly from him in his second volume. Contraception can always be carried out by a variety of methods and outward behavior similar to that involved in contraception sometimes has an entirely different moral significance. So contraception must be understood accurately in terms of the intention involved. That intention is to impede a new instantiation of the good of human life. Therefore, contraception is always contra life. So the contra-life will is a big part of his terminology. A contraception acts against the basic human good of life. I see. Note, however, that Griset does often refer to the physical structure of the body and the act. Michael, can you read that quote for us? Sexual intercourse is open to new life when a couple do not intend to impede, impede conception and their performance is such that conception would result if the physiological conditions were conducive to There he says physiological. That strikes me to be somehow failing to keep to his thing of distinguishing these two spheres, speculative and practical reasoning. Similarly, his rooting his analysis in the kind of act, to me, sounds like he's going from the is to the ought. Um, but his basic point about intention um, is that what, what makes contraception contraception? That, that's his claim. So we'll note, um, so in reverse, his claim that there are some contraceptives that you can use for a non-contraceptive intention. So we'll note next some extra in bioethics. Um, various contraceptive pills a woman might take in order to... Um, if she has difficulty with her cycle, heavy flows, body cramps, um, kind of more serious things with that, there are medical reasons to take those pills that are nothing to do with contraception. She might be single, uh, chaste, uh, not having sexual relations with anyone, but on the pill for those reasons. So it's not the pill that is contraceptive, it's the pill in a certain context. Or as Griset would say, the pill with a certain intention. So he's defining contraception in terms of intention. Now I note 
uh, open to new life. So I've had a long discussion with you repeatedly on this per se destinatus term. Um, I say Griset, in contrast to Janet Smith, speaks repeatedly of sex being open to new life. So he will use this word open a lot. So his entire argument that contraception involves an anti-life will, I would say, only really makes sense with a subjective sense of this word open. And this, as I noted in our previous lecture, doesn't seem to ne a necessary or fully appropriate reading of the Latin of Humana Vitae per se destinatus. So in 1980, a document of the Synod of Bishops um, did use the word open in the context of contraception, but that's the only place you'll find a church document <coughs> to do so. Griset um, kind of leaps on that in quoting it, but if you think of the time difference between 1968 and 1980, he'd been giving this argument a long time without a church document in Latin using the word open. But structurally, do you see the structure of his argument here? The couple envisage a future child and they say no. They envisage a future life and they say no. We are anti-life. Not a life that already is in, in abortion, but a life that might be, we say no. And he's saying that is the thing that is wrong as a moral choice. Yeah. So it seems like he, that context is kind of irrelevant for him. Irrelevant? I suppose he'd say that to take the pill to begin with in that context would imply, no, he'd be saying, yeah, that it's just the intention. Whereas kind of the scenario you're describing we'll look at a bit more in bioethics when we'll think of, because of the because most pills, contraceptive pills, have an abortifacient backup effect. They, a, a dual purpose pill is the most common. Um, therefore, not only if the woman was on the pill to do something for her cycle and then had relations with her husband, a child that was conceived would then be almost certainly aborted immediately, which would be an act of injustice to it. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll look at that scenario when we look at medical ethics, because that's a medical question. Is that appropriate medicine for her to be using if that's the activity in general they're engaged in?
Page six, how does this contrast with natural family planning in his system? So he says that natural family planning isn't contra-life. So uh, contraception, the couple think of a possible future child and they say no, no to life. That's what in his system is wrong with contraception. How does he de describe natural family planning in contrast? So avoiding conception by abstinence need not be contraceptive. He says their choice their abstinence is to refrain from intercourse insofar as it might cause a state of affairs which would include not only firstly a baby coming to be but other things which they think it reasonable and perhaps obligatory to avoid. So I say if the second half of the conditions other things they should avoid is not present namely there are no other things which they think it reasonable and perhaps obligatory to avoid, then abstinence would have a contraceptive intent. I would be solely a choice against a baby's coming to be. Which then seems like the, there's an ought there that means, well, you should then Yeah, that would seem to follow, wouldn't it? Yeah. And as a good German, you know, I don't want to touch my wife, but I feel duty bound to do so. <laughs> um, um. Let's read, you know, not trying to mark him too consistently here. I think his next, the bullet point here, the large quote, is very similar to what we read Elizabeth Anscombe say. Um, so, in periodic abstinence, could you read this for us, David? In periodic abstinence, they abstain during fertile times in order not to cause a pregnancy. However, their intention does not preclude intercourse during times they identify as infertile. And if they choose to have normal marital intercourse at those times, their intention in doing so plainly cannot be to impede the beginning of a new life, since the infertility So they abstain to not cause pregnancy, but their intention to abstain doesn't imply anything about their intention um, when they're not fertile. Fertile. So really back to Christopher's point, this does all hinge on intention and method doesn't seem to be relevant to the ethical analysis. Does he mean natural in this sense, like it's telos? No. Because um, there's a whole structure there he's just bypassed. Um, 
So he's not using Aristotle, he's not using Nietzsche's. So William May makes this point, and he follows Griset's school, that he says, in the mind of God, there's a connection here. You know, that what's speculatively true and what's um, practically true, in the mind of God for whom it all comes, it is all connected. But you as a human being doing your reasoning, your deductions, your argumentation, don't move from speculative reason to practical reason. Um, so the question of telos in nature just is not part of Griset's system. Is that an answer? Um, my critique, as I indicate there, says, does the dis above description of NFP correspond with reality? And no, so many NFP users. That in reality, in choosing NFP, one is choosing not to have a child at this time. But you're choosing it for just reasons, just reasons we looked at earlier in the church's teaching. Because I was making the point to you that What's different between contraception and natural family planning isn't intention. You both, in both cases, they are intending not to have a child. But how they go about getting to that intention matters. That there's the means and the end. Uh, the end doesn't justify the means. Whereas Griset is trying to hinge everything on intention which is therefore trying to hinge it on, on the end and saying that the end is anti-life. But what is Griset himself arguing? He's saying if, so the two things on that page, uh, Roman numerals one and two, if two isn't present, then the only reason you would be doing this would be the anti-life one. I don't want a baby to be. Whereas if two is present, that there are reasonable reasons to not want a child, that is what your will is choosing. And fairness and everything else in the modes of responsibility indicates that that's a reasonable way of choosing and pursuing the goods. In that way, it seems that if you don't have number two, then choosing not to have a child is a sin, is wrong. Yes, though I think that would be normal Catholic analysis. To choose to be married is to choose to enter into a way of life where having a child is just part of that package with a, a duty attached to do so. There are many just causes that would indicate many times when now is not the time, um, but that there is a kind of a general obligation in marriage to have children. Yes. So, so I think it, it might feel a little odd to structure it that way, but I think that bit of the analysis does, does hold. It's just, I would say it's, it, it feels an odd way to structure it, but that it, it's true.
Yes, and without the just reasons, um, you would then only have a contra-life will. So if you use natural family planning as your mechanism, you can use natural family planning for an anti-life motive. So you might, the woman might not want to take the pill knowing that it uh, pollutes her body with chemicals, that it has various side effects. She doesn't want the greater risk of cancer, the greater risk of um, heart problems that statistically go with that. She doesn't want to pollute her body with that chemical. So she uses natural family planning, but for just as truly an anti-life motive as some uh, secularist out there taking the pill. So the mechanism of using NFP doesn't necessarily mean it's moral. You can use NFP for an anti-life motive. And Grisier would say that, Janet Smith would say that. that. That's kind of your standard Catholic analysis. That's why the just causes thing is an important thing to be aware of. We've seen his structure. Whether it's compelling or not is a different question. I'm sure if I was a follower of his school, I would articulate it in a more compelling manner. Um, but I hope I've articulated it enough for you to see what his basic structure is. Page seven. Here we have a very different argument from him. Um, contraception as being contramarriage. And if we complete this page, that's all I would be aiming for us to have done today. So contraception is contra-marriage. So first, marriage, what is it? It's a basic human good. It's one of the eight. It's intelligible. It's intrinsically good. Marriage is a fundamental life choice that constitutes the very person who has chosen it. So that's one of his criteria of certain types of goods. So thus becomes for him an existential good a good that is part of his very existence, not merely good extrinsic to himself outside. Contraception, he says, damages and impedes the good of marriage. How does it do this? By opposing an aspect of that good, namely openness to procreation. In his system, marriage is a single good without any hierarchy of ends or hierarchy of goods, but inseparably including both the unitive and procreative dimensions. So this single good marriage has a unitive dimension, has a procreative dimension, but no hierarchy within it. It's just this single inseparable reality. Authentic marital intercourse is an act by which the couple become one flesh and experience themselves as becoming one flesh, and, it therefore, and is therefore necessarily a reproductive type act, because only reproductive type acts make a couple one flesh. So do you remember when I looked at John Paul II, him saying, unitive through being procreative, that this procreative dimension somehow bonds the couple together. We want a child, 
that holds us together. Having a child holds us together. Unity through being procreated. Only reproductive type acts make a couple one flesh. That said, a sexual act can fail to be an authentic marital act. If a sexual act is not marital, it violates the good of marriage. The marital act must retain organic complementarity in respect to reproduction, he says. Contraceptive sex thus fails to be a marital act. Um, Tyler, can you read the block quote, in as much as? Okay, so sixth mode of responsibility, um, to read it there, one should not choose on the basis of emotions, which bear upon empirical aspects of intelligible goods or bads, in a way that, which interferes with a more perfect sharing in the good or avoidance of the bad. Seventh mode, one should not be moved by hostility to freely accept or choose the destruction, damaging, or impeding of any intelligible human good. And the eighth, one should not be moved by a stronger desire for one instance of an intelligible good to act for it by means of choosing to destroy, damage, or impede some other instance of an intelligible good. I.e. to do so subordinates some possible elements of human fulfillment to others, even though there's no reasonable basis for doing so. In placing a non-rational limit on fulfillment, one proceeds in a way not consistent with the will towards integral human fulfillment. So a sexual act that isn't an authentic marital act, that is a sin. Contraception is not an authentic marital act because it is choosing to impede procreation directly. So that that in this structure isn't the argument anti-life, it's anti-marriage. So it's, it's a different argument, but the same conclusion. Okay, that's all we're going to do on Grise. So I've given you a taste, an introduction to his thought. Um, I've tried to be respectful, um, but it's not my system. Um, you can see it's complex, it's detailed. Uh, if you're wanting to know more, I've given you kind of a bit of a trajectory of where you can look and read more. If you followed those footnotes where I'm quoting, you could see he himself articulating those arguments. Um, but in this course, that's all we're going to do on Grisey.